0: Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Welcome tonight as we continue our study of end times. Tonight we are coming to the Battle of Armageddon. Take your Bibles and turn over to... Revelation chapter 19. Today we're going to study the greatest and most bizarre battle of human history. That is the Battle of Armageddon. Now, it will be the greatest battle of human history because it will involve all the nations of the world. None will be excluded. It will be the greatest battle of human history because of its immensity and scope. Dr. Herman Holt describes the location and size of this battle for us when he says, "...the staggering dimensions of this conflict can scarcely be conceived by man. The battlefield will stretch from Megiddo on the north to Edom on the south, a distance of approximately 200 miles." It will reach from the Mediterranean Sea on the west to the hills of Moab on the east, a distance of almost 100 miles. It will also include the Valley of Jehoshaphat. At the center of the entire area will be the city of Jerusalem. Into this area, the multiplied millions of men, doubtless approaching 400 million, will be crowded for the final holocaust of humanity. The kings with their armies will come from the north and the south and the east and from the west. In the most dramatic sense, this will be the valley of decision for humanity, and the great winepress into which will be poured the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. The shed blood of those involved in this fighting will be as deep as a horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. There will be such destruction and devastation that men's flesh will rot off their bones while they stand there, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And we're told about that over in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. I will read that. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouth. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them, and they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another." Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So also like this plague will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. That's Zechariah chapter 14 verses 12 through 15. So indeed the immensity and scope of this battle will be staggering. It will also be the most unusual and extraordinarily bizarre battle of human history because of who will be involved. It will involve the devil, the antichrist, the false prophet, the demons, and Christ and the angels and Christians and the Jews. Also during this battle, there will be a great conversion of Jews to Jesus. Also, the sky will split open and bodies will come out of the graves and the living will be transformed. And unbelievably, it will be over in a flash. Just as it looks like things are about to get going, really get started, it will be all over. Now, this battle is described in Revelation uh, chapter 19, as I said earlier. And the Great Battle of Armageddon is mentioned a number of times in the Bible. Five different books of the Bible tell us about it. It's mentioned a number of times in Revelation itself. For example, in chapter 14 of Revelation, in verses 7 through 20, it speaks about this Battle of Armageddon. Chapter 14, beginning with verse 17 another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar. He called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth. And threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the wine press up to a horse's bridle for a distance of two hundred miles. Also, Revelation chapter sixteen and verses twelve through sixteen talks about this battle of Armageddon. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river. And the Euphrates and its waters were dried up, so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty." Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who keeps awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And then over in chapter 17, verse 14. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. So it will be the most bizarre, extraordinary battle of human history because of who will be involved, because of the scope and immensity of it. Uh, Now also, the question is, why will the nations of the world come to the Middle East to engage in this world war? Can't they live in peace? Why will they come all to the uh, plains of Megiddo? Well, first, because of the sovereignty of God. Because of the sovereignty of God. Roman 2a. Throughout Revelation, as we have seen, God's sovereignty continues to shine forth and be clearly pronounced. It may look like the world events have gone awry, but God's sovereign. And he is at work to complete his will. And so it is here. God will move the nations to gather in the plains of Jezreel. So that he can accomplish his plan for human history. And there God will pour out his wrath and indignation on the Christ rejecting of mankind. For instance, over in Isaiah chapter 34... We see this talked about. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. And Then in Joel chapter 3 verse 2. I will gather all the nations and will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And then in Zechariah chapter 14 verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And then Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 8. For the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed my decision is to gather nations, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger. So first and foremost, they will gather there in the Middle East to make war because of the sovereignty of God. God has sovereignly brought them there so that he might pour out his holy judgment on them. Secondly, it's because of the deception of Satan. You remember, we just saw over in chapter 16, it talked about the spirits, unclean spirits like frogs, going out of the Antichrist and the false prophet uh, and Satan, and they performed signs, that is, miracles, And in in order to entice the kings of the world to come together for that great war. The great war on the day of God Almighty. So that's why they're going to gather together. It's going to be part of God's plan. And he will even use the deceptions of Satan to accomplish that. Now as we prepare to look at Revelation 19, let me again set the stage for you. Of what things will be like. First the armies. Of the world. Have gathered into the Middle East. Possibly over 400 million soldiers. Gathered in the Middle East. There in the plains. 200 miles by 100 miles. They will begin to ramsack and ravish Jerusalem. Again. Zechariah chapter 14 tells us about this as we see uh, the armies of the um, nations coming to re- re- bring war against Israel. It says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, and the women ravished. And so there will be this time of turning on Israel and bringing a ravishing upon them. And then suddenly God will lift the veil from Israel's eyes and there will be a great spiritual awakening. And we see this over in Zechariah chapter 12 beginning with verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadrimmon in the plain of Megiddo. And then Zechariah 13:1. In the day, in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. There will be a mass conversion. Jews will be saved by the millions. They will accept Jesus as their Savior. I believe that it is to, it, this, to this occasion that Paul is writing in Romans 11, When he says, For if you were cut off for what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, he's talking about the Gentiles being cultivated in, that God has has turned away from Israel at that point to bring in the Gentiles, but he's not through with Israel, Paul says. How much more will these who are the natural branches, he's talking about Israel, be gathered into their own olive tree. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. For a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So I think Paul is talking about this. What we're seeing now is this partial hardening of Israel as they have turned away from the Messiah, but God's not through with them. When Christ prepares to return at the end of the tribulation, there will be this mass awakening among the nation of Israel. And all living Jews at that time, I believe Paul is saying, will be saved. And simultaneously with all of this, there will be some strange things happening in the sky. The sun will be darkened. The moon will stop shining. The stars will begin to fall. The powers of heaven are shaken. And then there will be this great trumpet blast, this great shout... Shout strong enough to wake up the dead. The sky will split open. Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty flaming angels. The graves of Christians will be torn asunder. Bodies will come out glorified, praising God. Christians who are living are suddenly caught up in the air, transformed to perfected, glorified bodies, praising God. And they will be taken up to meet Jesus in the sky and then will come back with him as his mighty army. I believe that from the time of the trumpet sound, it could be only a matter of seconds or minutes that all of this will take place with the transformation and rising of the dead and and joining with Christ in the sky and coming back with him at the great battle of Armageddon. Now we are ready to look at chapter 19. What John tells us about this battle. First, we see the warrior king Jesus, beginning in verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Now so many times in the Bible... We've seen Jesus as Savior, as suffering servant, as a slain, sacrificial lamb, as gentle, meek, the humble carpenter. But here he is pictured as the great warrior, the conquering king. John first sees Jesus seated on a white horse. The white horse was the symbol of conquest. When a Roman general would go in and defeat an area... They would have a big procession afterwards and he would come riding on a white horse to celebrate the victory, the triumphant. Notice Jesus is also called faithful and true. This refers to the faithfulness and reliability of Jesus. God's always been faithful to keep his promises. If God promises it, you can count on it being done. Now through the conquering Christ, God is fulfilling his promise to judge the wicked, to vindicate himself, and to avenge his people. Notice it says, in righteousness he judges and makes war. The return of Christ in victory will not be an act of personal vengeance. It will be an act of righteous judgment. They will deserve all that they receive from Christ. Verse 12 tells us, his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. First it says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. We saw this over in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, when it describes exalted Christ, the glorified Christ. It's symbolic, the eyes of fire are symbolic that he is all-knowing. The all-searching gaze of Christ. Nothing is hidden from his gaze. That's why he can judge righteously. Because he knows all the facts. He knows everything. Notice on his head are many diadems. Remember, the diadem was the royal crown. Not the victor's crown, but the royal crown. What's John saying? He's saying Jesus is supreme royalty. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. In his resurrection and ascension, Christ began to reign as King and Lord of the universe. Now this is hidden from us right now. Things might even appear to us to make us wonder if he's really in control. But at his second coming, his sovereign power, his kingly rule will be completely manifested, clearly seen. He is the king of kings coming to openly display his divine rule. Verse 12 tells us also that he has a name upon him which no one knows. We've already seen that he's He's named Faithful and True. And we're going to see in a moment that he also has a name, the Word of God. What does this mean that he has a secret name that no human mind can know? You remember what? Name represented in Scripture, the person. You know, there's no Greek word for person. There's a Latin word, persona, but there's no Greek word. So the Greeks would use the phrase name to represent person. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord Jesus means whoever shall call upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the person, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just believing in the letters J-E-S-U-S. It's the person. Ask him my name, Jesus said. Mean Ask according to my person, who I am. Well, what does it mean now? He has a name that no human can know. I think what John is telling us, he's referring to the absolute majesty and greatness of God. To know someone's name, you remember, in the Old Testament was to, in a sense, know that person right? Remember Jacob wanted to know who was that wrestled with him? You know, what, what is your name? Because God is infinite, He is beyond our ability to know completely and absolutely. His essential deity is so great, we cannot know it fully. He is infinite, we are finite. Our understanding of Christ He is so small compared to how great he really is. He is much greater than our understanding of him. Therefore, I think this is John's way of saying he has a name. You can know him in some ways as a faithful one, uh, as a word of God, uh, as the true one. But there are aspects of his person that we will never be able to comprehend and know. There's that name that no human can know. Praise God. We serve such a great Savior. Such a great Lord. And also verse 13 says. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now, This is Christ the warrior. This is not his sacrificial blood. The robe is stained with the blood of his enemies. And he goes on to say. And his name is called the word of God. It reminds us. What John said over in his gospel, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And it was that Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory of the only unique Son of God. Full of grace and truth. So the Word of God, Jesus, is coming here. Now notice the army of heaven with Christ. Verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen... White and clean will following him on white horses. First, the angels. I know this from 1 Thessalonians one seven, it says, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Okay. Also, I believe we're talking about the raptured saints. Those that have been resurrected. Those have been transformed while they were living. They are called and said that they are clothed in fine linen, that they are white and they are clean. And again, it's interesting how closely their dress is to the bride of Christ as we see in verse 8 of chapter 19. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, this is the bride, bright and clean, for the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Also in chapter 17 we saw earlier in verse 14 those who come to wage war with the Lamb, and see if this doesn't sound like we Christians. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and those who are with Him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. Does that not describe you and I as Christians? We're called, we're chosen, and we're kept faithful by God's grace. So it will be the angels, There will be the raptured saints. Notice no weapons are mentioned. No weapons at all. Strange army, isn't it? An army with no weapons. But something even stranger than that. We are an army that will not fight. <laughs> an army that won't fight. Our king is going to do all our fighting for us. We're just going to sit on the sidelines and shout praises. Now I want you to look at the ultimate weapon, more powerful than all the nuclear arsenal that we have put together on this planet. And that's in verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nation. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The most powerful weapon, the ultimate weapon, is the Word of God. You don't get more powerful than the Word of God. It was through the spoken word that he created this universe. Out of nothing. And it is by his word that he sustains the universe, the scripture says. And so King Jesus will but speak the word and the armies of the Antichrist and the nations will be destroyed. Just like it looks, just when it looks like the fighting is about to really get started, it's over. All the advancement of nuclear technology, all the super weapons that the Antichrist and the armies of the world may have at their disposal will be no match for the power of the spoken word of God. He'll just speak the word and they will be slain. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the... Birds which fly in mid-heaven come assemble for the great supper of God. So they may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assemble to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh." Jesus but speaks the word, and the invading armies are killed instantly. The birds are called to eat their flesh. The Antichrist and the false prophet are seized and thrown into hell. Now, John doesn't really give us a great deal of details about this battle of Armageddon. So I want to just go to some of the Old Testament scriptures that point to this battle and just see what they tell us. The first one is Isaiah 34, verses 1 through 10. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen. O peoples, let the earth and all it contains hear, and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and His wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He's given them over to the slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out. Their corpses will give off their stench. And the mountains will be drenched with their blood. And all the hosts of heaven will wear away. And the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away. As a leaf withers from the vine. Or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, I shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the peoples whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Borah and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen will also fall with them and young bulls with strong ones. Thus their lands will be soaked with blood and their dust becomes greasy with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams will be turned into pitch, its loose earth into brimstone. Its land will become burning pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever from generation to generation. And then in Isaiah 63, verses 3 and 4, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption has come. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their life blood on the earth. And then in Joel chapter 3. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there. And on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice in Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through no More. So it is the great battle that will bring an end to human history as we know it. That concludes our study for tonight.